Hi, everyone, and welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we explore the science of crime and the practical application of this science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science Podcast. This is the latest in our weekly update series, and I'm joined by Tony D'Onofrio and Tom Meehan and our producers, Diego Rodriguez and Wilson Gabarino from the LPRC team. And today we're going to go around the world and talk a little bit about, uh, of course, what's going on in the crime and crime prevention space, um, which is all too prevalent and seems to uh, take main stage now in so many of the media sources. Uh, It seems like almost daily multiple articles and uh, episodes of new shows come out uh, around particularly retail crime, uh, but how it's reflecting uh, the breakdown uh, across the United States and, and probably other countries, but certainly in the United States. And clustered in many, many cities, it looks like, around the U.S., uh, in, on the coast, and sometimes in the interior spaces uh, where there's a breakdown that there just aren't the consequences for offenders, uh, but there's bountiful opportunity for those offenders to to victimize or harm people and and their places. And I think that's what's always so important for us to keep front and center is that a criminal offender is a criminal offender because they have victimized another person or another person's place and or. And I think that every place uh, belongs to another person or persons. It's there to serve people. It's there to be part of that vibrant uh, block that neighborhood, that community, uh, this nation. And uh, these are not uh, some faceless places that are uh, they can come and go, that these are places that are owned and operated and visited by and, and really uh, serve people in their respective areas. And so when some, one or more people decide to take something from those people, from those places, uh, to disrupt those places, to threaten people and do worse. You know, that's where we've got a problem. And traditionally, whether it's in a household or a community or a nation uh, across place and time, I think through human history, uh, we're typically have been held accountable for harming another person and or their place uh, and their assets. And uh, in many places, that just doesn't seem to be happening. Um, in the way that uh, has been built up and developed and tested uh, over generations. And, you know, many scholars and leaders and philosophers have said over time, there is no perfect way to do just about anything uh, as humans, uh, but we try and um, and we try and get better. And sometimes we make mistakes. The systems that we've set up, the judiciary process, you know, the law enforcement process, the prosecutorial process, all these things can uh, function and function well, but they also can have mistakes because of individual errors, uh, because we learn and adapt and adjust um, and things like that. So whether it's learning to walk um, as a child or uh, operating a criminal justice system, uh, we're going to make errors, we're going to learn, we're going to adjust, we're going to adapt, and we hold people accountable within the system. Uh, with, that are out there trying to execute uh, and make errors in judgment, uh, or sometimes, sometimes, rarely, but sometimes purposely uh, do things wrong. And again, uh, they're held accountable. And the same thing, though, in our population. You know, if we go to somebody's house or their vehicle uh, into their workplace um, and we take something from them, 
threaten them, intimidate them, uh, physically harm them, uh, or again, worse, that's where accountability comes in. So, you know, we can step back and go back down to the more granular level. Um, we're, what we've tried to do here at the LPRC is uh, initially play a lot of small ball um, while doing a couple of overarching studies. Again, you all know in 1988-89, uh, we started working on the, uh, myself and, and uh, Dr. White's um, and Bill Zalat of Security Magazine offered to publish the first national retail security survey. Sensormatic uh, ended up providing the funding resource mechanism to make the study happen. Um, and I, uh, we came out in 90 uh, and 91, 92, 93, 94 with the first studies. Uh, Dr. Richard Hollinger came on uh, as we had collected our first data. We're analyzing it, written the first wave report, first draft, um, and helped us polish that up. So we wanted to get an idea uh, about the scope and scale of the problem of retail crime in the United States, um, how that's reflected, particularly in inventory shortage or shrinkage, um, and also get a, a real uh, uh, get the pulse on what are retailers doing about it? What do they think is causing the problem? You know, some of it is their own employees, the internal threat, the insider threat. Part of it is external threat, if you will, people that are just shoplifting, stealing. So I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the happenings at the LPRC real quickly here. And um, a lot of energy and momentum now as the LPRC research team and the operations team uh, working always hand in hand are moving out on the 2023 version of LPRC Impact, our annual conference, our gathering to review the research we've done to meet up with our colleagues that we've worked on throughout the year in the and the six working groups and the Innovate program. Uh, and so gather our thoughts, talk about it, and go through sessions. What what have we learned about reducing theft and reducing fraud and, of course, violent, aggressive acts um, in our seven uh, groups that we meet in, which includes Innovate. And so uh, we're excited about it. We also have a lot of, a lot of, lot of opportunities for networking, engaging with colleagues and friends and others and uh, we do that, of course, with lab tours. Um, we have a nice reception at the UF's uh, Innovate Hub building where our seven uh, in, indoor and outdoor labs are located. Um, and so it's a it's a really neat time. You see probably three to four hundred uh, industry professionals there, law enforcement uh, executives and officers, uh, of course, retail the same thing, executives and, of course, our solution partners and manufacturers like Procter & Gamble. Uh, are there getting together? We'll have local officials, you know, University of Florida faculty and students are there. And it's a really neat reception always that Monday evening of impact. Um, we also have our gathering on that Tuesday evening of impact. Uh, and in the last several years, we've had it at uh, UF's football stadium, the, fondly known around Gainesville and beyond as the swamp. Uh, it's up there in the champions level. And it's really a neat experience. You've got Albert the Alligator and cheerleaders, and there's all kind of putt-putt uh, golf and board games. There's normally either a really good DJ or live band and open bar and uh, fantastic local food. And uh, you can be indoors or outdoors. You know, you can be out sitting out like you're watching a game uh, in there and visiting as well as inside. Uh, and people that have been coming for years get together and inside and out, catch up, meet new people. Uh, it's really a neat time. 
um, in addition to all the breaks and things. So there's a lot of opportunities to gather and get to know each other. We have talk sessions and, of course, get down to business and go through, you know, what what a specific issue is, what research was conducted, what did we find, and what are the implications talking about? How does that apply uh, in a C store or a department store environment or a big box, uh, a small box um, in the parking areas in a corporate office or distribution center, uh, for example, what are these implications? And then each one too, where are we going next? Okay, we learned this, we didn't learn that, or we because we learned this and we're doing this, we also would like to know that. So every session is designed to move to the next level um, and then continue that throughout time because again, uh, LPRC was designed by retailers and, and guided by retailers and it's different. It's not a one-off uh, event where you come in, you talk, you share, you learn, um, you engage, you greet, you relax and enjoy each other. Those are neat. Um, but in a lot of cases you move on, you know, where's your, you, you get rid of your name tag, you keep moving. Uh, LPRC includes those opportunities and the, all that um, that's so vital and important as people and particularly people dealing with very, very complex, difficult and even tragic issues. Um, but in this case, with our six working groups, plus the innovative advisory panel meeting year round, getting to know each other, working on very specific issues within theft, theft excuse me, theft, fraud, violence uh, within supply chain protection, organized retail crime, uh, intel and investigations and prevention um, with data analytics and mapping and things like that. Um, you get to know each other. You're solving problems year round. You're putting out research and action briefs and reports, um, but you're continuing. There is a continuing problem solving uh, going on. Um, and so that's really what impact is about is to review the year, supercharge everybody for the upcoming challenges in the next year and maintain that continuity, that momentum, that problem solving that needs to happen individually, but most critically here at the LPRC collectively or collaboratively. Uh, so it's unique and it's different. It's, um, you know, going into our 20th one coming up here soon. And, um, and so we invite any and every practitioner, uh, uh, whether you're law enforcement or loss prevention, asset protection, uh, if you're a designer of technology, you know, somebody that's helping us solve the problems with your solutions, your people, your programs, your systems, uh, we want you to come in and engage with us and talk about things with us. Um, so uh, we've also had a series of VIP visitors. It continues uh, you know, right now, actually, this week as we speak, we've got Ahold, Dale Hayes, one of the largest supermarket chains in the world with, you know, brands that include Food Lion and Stop and Shop and Giant Foods, uh, just to name a few. They operate in Belgium and uh, the Netherlands and so on in Europe, but of course, across the United States. These are the leaders overall. Uh, we've got Jim in here. Uh, overall, Ahold and Dale Hayes uh, and some of his team. Uh, at that level, that services level that serve the different brands or chains. Uh, and then we've got those brands or chains leaders and some of their team in here. Also merchants or buyers in here with us too, to brainstorm in this case, that product protection side, even though violence is also being discussed and fraud <clears throat> and so forth. They're spending a day and a half in the labs with our team, with just themselves. Um, and we're excited about it. And you see the same thing going on. We've got to Harbor Freight and Lowe's Home Improvement and Nordstrom coming up. Uh, we've had, of course, some leading brands like CVS and public supermarkets and Walmart. 
Um, TJX is different. Uh, also, they're different. Marshalls, Max, Home Goods, and so forth in here, uh, and a whole lot more that have come and more that are on the way. Uh, so we want to invite you also to come in individually as a team and come this way and uh, brainstorm with us and yourselves and uh, get into this unique academic research slash practical environment. Um, and we'll talk next week more about the Safer Places Lab, uh, the uh, the labs we've got here where we're based, the four square blocks that we've talked about quite a bit, and then the Eastside Initiative a little bit more co-located non-center stores. Uh, we'll talk about the West Side Initiative. That's the co-located open environment lifestyle center. Uh, and then we're going to talk about what's going to happen in the enclosed environment. Um, we'll unveil that pretty soon now. That's being worked on. And, and then finally, working in a very urban environment where high-loss stores are clustered within a brand, but between uh, retail corporations as well. How can they cooperate like we're learning on the east side, but in a very, very urban, tough environment? So uh, stay tuned on all that. We're excited. So with no further ado, let me turn this over to, to Tony, uh, Tony D'Onofrio. We'll go to Tom after that, and we'll sum it up. Thank you very much, Reed, for all those great updates. Uh, this week, I actually had the pleasure to be uh, at the PGA National in uh, near West Palm Beach headquarters uh, at the resort delivering a keynote on the artificial intelligence future of retail, uh, and I call it the artificial intelligence disruptive future retail, to a group of about uh, 200 plus people in the technology space. And so what I would like to do this week and this podcast is summarize some of the highlights from that, uh, from that presentation. If you would like a copy of that presentation, please send me a note uh, through either the LPRC, or going to my website, TonyDonofrio.com. So the headline is, starting at a macro level, the world is slowing down uh, in terms of the economy. So worldwide, the growth for 23 is only expected to be 2.8% if you listen to the International Monetary Fund and only 2.5% from Euromonitor. But more importantly, for the listening audience, uh, for in advanced economies such as the United States, Western Europe, Australia, and so on, the growth for 23 is only 1.3%, and uh, the, the Euromonitor is even more pessimistic. It's only 0.8% for 23. Next year, not much better. Both the Euromonitor and the International Monetary Fund only forecast 1.4% growth for the um, advanced economies. Uh, inflation is a big issue. The good news is that inflation is down worldwide. Uh, it was 9% in 2022. It's now uh, projected to be 6.9% uh, worldwide by the end of the year and dropped down to 4.3%. For advanced economies, it's, it's projected at 46 for 23 and 24 uh, for 24. Uh, again, that's uh, 24 is getting closer to that 2% uh, target uh, that uh, most federal agencies are looking for. But it's uh, all over the map in terms of who has the highest inflation. The U.S. just came in at um, 4%, but U.K., for example, came in at nearly 9%. But there's places like Switzerland that have excellent low inflation at only 2.2%. I also talk about some of the uh, headwinds that are going on for retail. I show the chart that uh, retail still has a lot of stores. In fact, it has the highest retail per uh, square footage per person at over 20 through 23 feet, and it's really like 10 times what it is in Germany and in a lot of other 
uh, countries. Uh, so in a lot of uh, places, there's a lot of work to do. I talked about retail sales and how we recover from the pandemic. As of April 2023, uh, only the convenience store sector and especially hard goods were negative. Everyone else was positive in terms of sales growth, and that includes food, drug, mass merch, department stores, especially soft goods, restaurants, and online. But if you factor in inflation, everybody was down except for drug stores and also online. So those are the only two sectors that when you factor inflation are actually growing through May of 2023. I also talked about the most unfortunate uh, basically generation that's been hit the hardest by all this, and it's millennials. They've had the least in terms of wealth generation in their last 15 years uh, versus every other generation. So they are the unlucky generation, and they're suffering the most through all this. Uh, Some of the other topics that I covered is the inventory distortion worldwide, which right now stands at uh, over $1.9 trillion, and inventory distortion is out of stocks and overstocks. That is a big problem because that's one of the reasons uh, why consumers leave the store. Uh, 59% leave the store when they find empty shelf, and this is a worldwide number, and it's a worldwide problem. For this audience also, a, a chunk of this audience, that they talk about retail shrink and all the headlines that have been taking place uh, this year, and there's a chart that talks about all the major retailers that have announced shrink. And uh, and I mentioned that Bloomberg just stated that 200 retailers actually had shrink in their earnings announcement in their last quarter. And in the Hayes International uh, the report that was just recently released of 26 large retailers, 81% of those retailers reported higher shrink in 22. Total apprehension increased nearly 46%. And total recovery dollar from those appreciation increased 70.5%. So an amazing set of numbers. I talked about shrink, and I also talked about violence in terms of the, the escalating violence. Uh, 694 people were killed in retail in uh, 2022, up 17% on the previous year, and up 86% on 2016. So that's a big issue. Finally, in terms of retail challenges, I talked about the Amazon effect, which really manifested itself during the pandemic. Uh, Amazon is a major powerhouse in retail, has grown substantially over the years, but actually recently has slowed down. The challenges for retail, uh, most consumers have the highest trust in Amazon to actually have the product in stock, and especially those with, with Amazon Prime, that they find something out of stock when they walk into a store. They will immediately purchase from the phone uh, to from a competitor or directly from Amazon. So they are basically aggressive in terms of leveraging those digital skills. I also talked about how Amazon really has dramatically changed as a company in terms of where their revenue comes from. Their Amazon program, not has Amazon Prime program has over 200 million people. Half of Amazon revenue actually comes outside of the retail sales online and physical stores. So it comes from places like their AWS, um, the web services. They, has, they do $38 billion in advertising. And they also have, they've sold over 500 million Alexas. So they have a lot of levers that they can pull. And I also pointed out that Amazon spends uh, over $15 billion on retail. Uh, on retail innovation, so on new technologies. And these are examples like Amazon Go 
and uh, smart cards and so on. But I also pointed out that actually some of those investments are actually being slowed down because Amazon has discovered uh, they're not uh, actually scalable. I then went into a discussion in terms of why I think retail is extremely resilient. And I talked about store openings and closings and how many are out there. And really 22 for a lot of chains, especially for Dollar General, Family Dollar, Dollar Tree, Five Below, TJS companies, uh, Ace Hardware, they opened a lot of stores. Um, so this whole thing about the retail apocalypse is not really a valid statement. I, and then I finally, in terms of what's, why retail is resilient, I talked about uh, the global retail sales and where they're at. Uh, for 23, we're going to cross $30 trillion of retail sales. will continue to grow. The good news, not everything is going online. Even by 2026, only 24% of total retail sales will be online. The rest is actually going to be in physical stores. And uh, I showed a chart that actually shows that uh, since the pandemic, the growth of online sales has dramatically lowered. I then went into a discussion of detailed technologies in terms of what they are, in terms of which ones are the most important. I talked about the accelerated pace, what were the technology priorities for retail in 2023, which are, by the way, the top three, personalized customer experience, inventory visibility, and empowering store associates. I talked about emerging technologies that are most important, and they are larger, wider networks to get all that data out of the stores, RFID, and voice and walkie-talkies, because the parking lot is now becoming one of those places where there's a lot of commerce. I covered the top five technologies that are most important in retail, and then I went into a deep dive on artificial intelligence, why it's becoming critical to retail, why it's actually a 92 trillion dollar uh, retail is going to have an economic impact through 2029 of 9.2 trillion dollars so I talked about that and the areas where it's going to impact and I provided a word of caution that Americans are not really fully in in terms of artificial intelligence that are questioning and really don't understand it yet just 15 percent of Americans are more excited than concerned about increase to the use of AI in, in daily life and finally, I concluded about some of the critical technologies that are going to be important in retail going into the future. And these includes a lot more frictionless commerce, a lot more connectivity of products through an analysis of at item level. And this would include products like RFID, GPS, and also uh, computer vision. Uh, and then I also talked that even for loss prevention, RFID and computer vision popped up as the top two items in terms of technology investment in the last NRF security survey. And I concluded with the store of the future, which to me, the store of the future looks bright. It's going to have a lot more data being generated, going through really these smart filters and these smart filters creating these immersive experiences that really uh, gen up uh, consumers to be very happy with the brand. And I said the most important person for retail going forward is actually the store associate. That store associate has to be an equal uh, brand ambassador as the consumer and be equipped with tools. Because right now with smartphone, the consumer in, in a lot of stores is smarter than the actual store associate. And so they need better tools to actually respond to that digitized consumer. So it was a well, extremely received presentation. I've asked a lot of requests for copies. Again, if you would like a copy to go into a lot more detail of it, 
please contact me uh, either through the, the Loss Prevention Research Council or uh, you can look me up on TonyDenorfi.com and send me an email. And with that, let me turn it over to Tom. Well, thank you, Tony, and thank you, Reed. A uh, lot, of, lot of things going on, as always. We've had a, what I'd say is a pretty action-packed last few months uh, around the geopolitical space, the cybersecurity space, the retail space, uh, f- finishing up NRF Protect, lots and lots of... Um, you know, lots and lots of uh, back and forth on ORC in the news. So wanted to talk about a couple of things. Uh, just this week, um, there was actually, I think it was today on the, the 20th, uh, could have been yesterday, but I think, I think it's today. New York City Council was looking at potentially passing an, an ordinance to stop the use of facial recognition in retail in New York City. So, um, this is a kind of following the trend in certain cities of what I would say is um, almost you know anti-retail uh, type uh, uh, ordinances or or laws. Uh, this one is in particular specific to New York City, and it does specifically talk about retail and the privacy um, the privacy concerns. So. Uh, we've often talked about here on the uh, on the podcast as well at the LPRC is uh, I think everybody understands there's certainly a need for uh, facial recognition, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, regulation. But this is one of those things where facial recognition is working at helping identify uh, bad actors, and um, New York City Council is 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 basically. Targeting that, and I have not seen an update um, yet. But this was supposed to go through today, and basically, um, it, the the city is proposing a ban on the technology to, to use to deter theft. And um, the the it, it is it is in front. So we'll keep an eye on that. And uh, this also kind of goes to you know a recent bill around in California around the stopping of of an apprehension of shoplifters and some of the things that are required. So. We're in this uh, very interesting um, piece, uh, you know, time where we have a lot of different things occurring. Some of them are politically motivated. Some of them are privacy motivated. But I think we we are continuously looking at this evolution. So, um, in the the New York City ban specifically, um, there's a lot of chatter from groceries, uh, grocery stores, and uh, grocery stores and both large and small, you know, publicly saying, you know, this is another example of how the city is not supporting, um, them. Uh, so I think, you know, there was a recent story not too long ago, which follows the city's feud with Madison square garden, uh, Madison Square garden had a, a lawyer who was refused entry, um, because of a pending litigation with their law firm, that policy in place, it, it, there was no problem with that policy. The way they identified this individual was through facial recognition. That's what drove um, the, the conversation. And that was um, what I would say not the start, but uh, part of the start of where this would, this would start this bill uh, it actually calls for a, a fine of up to five thousand dollars per violation, plus any legal fees. And um, you know there are um, a bunch of folks 
that are for this, but there are also um, people that um, are against it. Uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, Councilman Robert Holden from Queens actually uh, was against it and said that he hopes the bill doesn't pass. He thinks it penalizes small businesses uh, who attended the hearing on the technology uh, uh, committee. So I, I think there, there, this is a divided, um, a divided issue here. And again, uh, I think uh, in some cases, retailers are feeling like the city's not supporting them. So we'll certainly watch the space um, and follow up with it. And um, not, I have no uh, predictions on how it will occur, but it is happening in real time. Um, new new scam, not really a new scam, but a scam that surfaced more as we all are continuing to see cybersecurity. We're becoming more aware and some institutions, financial institutions specifically, are requiring two-factor authentication. So it's probably not unlikely that if you use a bank or, or um, a banking online or other services today that when you get log in on a new device, it sends you a text message for two-factor authentication. Uh, you may actually be at a higher degree of two-factor using an app-based authentication, but there is um, what I would say is not so clever, but looks um, pretty clever uh, when, you look, when, you, when you look at it here, a scam where people are going in and trying to hack into your account. This is being perpetrated a lot on social media, but what they're doing is they're actually on social media having a conversation with someone about a product or a, you know, potentially you won something in a chat window and they're saying, okay, I'm going to send you a verification code. Um, you know, don't share this code with anybody else, but send me that code. And what they're actually doing is logging into your account while they're talking to you. So they're talking to you. They've spent a little bit of time, social engineering and having a conversation built rapport with you in a conversation and then using safety type technology words going, okay, I'm going to send you this, go ahead and, and just click on this and go to the website. Okay. It's going to ask you to enter this code or give me that code and then actually log in. And while they try to log in with your, your, usually credentials that they bought somewhere else, then they get that two-factor number and you give it to them. So, you know, when it says never give this code to anybody, never give it to anybody. And recently, um, I was actually uh, <laughs> uh, in a legitimate technical support call um, with an extremely large phone carrier and they said, I'm going to text you a verification code. And I know I was talking to them. And they said, I need you to give, you, give me that code. And I said, no, I'm not going to give you that code because then you'd have access to my full account. And the person said, well, I can't help you unless you give me that code. And then um, they put a supervisor on and the supervisor said, oh, you know what? We sent you the wrong code. Um, you're 100% right. We should have never asked you for that. So it wasn't malicious. But um, it's important to note that if if – you receive any type of two-factor authentication code that you should not share it with anyone because it gives them access to your account and in times you could not. At certain times, you may not be able to get that said access back. So I think uh, I can't stress enough the importance of even if it's a trusted actor um, or what's thought to be a trusted actor, you don't really want to give that code to anybody. Um, certainly don't want to give it to someone sight unseen over a phone or via a text messaging app. Uh, switching gears a little bit, uh, ChatGPT 
um, has hit the news and there was several, um, uh, I think it was a, roughly a few thousand credentials found on the dark web to log into people's chat GP accounts, G- GPT accounts. There's no reason to believe that there was a data breach or anything along those lines. The data is still becoming available. This this could be just a, a, you know um, a, a a victim of people reusing passwords. We don't really have all the uh, all of the information, but there's about a hundred thousand account credentials being sold on the dark web marketplaces right now. Um, this isn't uncommon. I mean, this is a pretty common thing that occurs with any online service. I think because ChatGBT is in the news right now, you're um, you're hearing much more about it. I think one of the things we often talk about in this in the cybersecurity space is do not um, use the same passwords, right? Like that happens. Um, cybersecurity firm Group IB announced that it came across a massive collection um, and you know uh, of Malware, and, you know, that they believe was caused by malware-infected devices that scrape these passwords. So, just something to be very, very cognizant of that when passwords are sold and they're sold in the dark, when you uh, sold in the dark web, you may be asking yourself a question: What value does a Chat GPT credential have? Well, that all depends. One, if you reuse your passwords and you have your same, um, uh, use your same email address that allows a bad to take that and do a bot attack to look at other accounts where there might be uh, sensitive or private information or even potentially financially driven things. The other thing is some people are using ChatGPT for things that, although it might not be recommended, um, like business or personal things, and you are actually able to when you get into someone's account, get their history if it, if they if they saved it. So, a couple of different things that are there. One of the things I would say about um, um, ChatGPT is I you know I think you need to be very aware of what you put in it. That the, the some of the privacy concerns there, and like all services, all services use good password hygiene. Do not just you know um, use, use double duplicate passwords. Make sure that. Um, you're using good password hygiene and uh, you're using different passwords for everything. And I think that those are the, the things that we should all be aware of. The other thing is if you're using ChatGPT, uh, whether it's paid or free, understand that you're giving them your data. So if you're putting confidential information in there, um, that you need to be aware of um the, the fact that 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 occur that this could occur someone could get that information you don't know what's being used with it um, so something extremely extremely important to to be aware of when you're using it it's in the news uh, there are and we've talked about this here before several companies um, that are outlawing or banning um, chat GPT in the business sector they're saying hey this is off limits do not use it but I think um, you know there are I think there are things to that that chat GPT is very useful for and I think that you want to make sure that what you're aware of uh, and what what you're aware of is what the what the rules are of your company what information you share what your privacy um, uh, risks are and the reality is that this doesn't mean um, this doesn't mean that chat GPT is is bad this is just a, a, a circumstance of what occurs 
Um, and I think that's, that's something that you should, you know, you should just be aware of, uh, in the news. And this is where I'll end up that you have a lot of, of different, um, news around data sharing and social media and, and, um, you know, TikTok being bad. Uh, I think Facebook is back in the news, um, where, uh, there was information being sold and shared, uh, around, um, uh, different different uh, data brokers, but one of the big things that's come up is the U.S. government. Uh, some classified documents were not were unclassified and released that the U.S. government was buying commercially available information. So it's actually called CIA. Um, and for the listeners that are in investigators, you may know where some of you may actually use some of the CIA in. in in your investigations, companies like Axiom, LexisNexis, Reuters, Clear, uh, all sell public data or um, commercially available information. And Facebook and some of the other organizations out there also sell it. Uh, they are data companies, right? Uh, well, the U.S. government, uh, these documents that were released showed that the U.S. government was buying private citizens' data and and, and pooling that information. Uh, this is a fairly um, new find, you know, fairly new report. This is not a new process, um, but it is something that, you know, has garnered a lot of attention. Um, and the government, you know, government buying this, this private data, um, uh, it, it's, it, when I say private data, private citizens data is unusual, but the U S government, um, was buying your data and then basically categorizing it and using it for other things from several third-party brokers. This is all over um, both in the national news and international news. The U.S. intelligence community, um, intelligence community has often collected data, as we know, but this is a little bit different. Um, if you're not familiar with CAI, so commercially available information, and sometimes it's referred to as CIA, um, but basically it's commercially available information or commercial information available. It's really the, the common term is commercially available information. Uh, this is not necessarily always public data. This is in information that's bought. Uh, generally, in, in the circumstances that we're referring to here, this is information that you as an end user gave permission for people to sell in the terms of services. We talk about this all the time. When you sign up for something that is free and there are terms like we share data with trusted sources or we use your data for marketing, um, that usually means what that is. This information that was, was uh, this commercially available data generally includes your location, some credit history, insurance claims, criminal records, employment history, income, um, purchase history, and personal interest data. That was the thing that really drove a lot of it. And as you probably can tell you by the conversation there where that data becomes available and viable. Now, this information is available commercially, so it can be evolved. It can be acquired from third party um, but and used uh, for a whole bunch of things. There are fair use acts. Uh, there are fair use when it, it comes to employment decisions or other things. But then there are some gray areas under um, investigations purposes where what is used or not. Um, the the report basically 
that a significant amount of commercial of information for mission-related purposes and sometimes uses social media data to aid in these missions. That was what the report said. Um, so uh, I think you know we'll we'll watch this. There'll be more to come with it. But the rule here is that if you're using an online service, if you're using an app, if you're ordering pizza on a delivery app and you read those terms of services, and I'm not suggesting you go out and read every terms of services. I don't know that that's realistic. That the data that you're giving them is sometimes, oftentimes, made commercially available. Sometimes it's anonymized and sometimes it's not. So what I often say is know what you're giving up and what you're receiving for it. If TikTok is very important to you and you enjoy watching TikTok, just understand what you're giving TikTok. If Facebook is important to you, understand what it is. If you're using the insurance company, uh, read their and you and you don't you know they they give you a privacy opt out notice. You read it, and those are you can control some of this, some of this you can't. But it's just a reminder that if you're using these things, that your data is available. And with that, I will turn it back over to Reed. Well, thanks so much, everybody, for dialing in, tuning in. Please let everybody out there know about LPRC's Crime Science Podcast. Give us those likes as you hear other podcasts talk about referrals, uh, repost, put us out there. Um, we're trying to do our best. And as always, give us your suggestions. Who should we talk to? What should we talk about? How should we look at things better or differently? What can we do to get the word out to practitioners, to maybe the media, to policymakers, lawmakers? Um, who needs to know about what you all are doing, how everybody's working together. We're injecting science into practice and so forth. So stay tuned, stay in touch, uh, lpresearch.org. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council. 